It's time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. Joined, as always, by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing great. Uh, always good to be here. Had occasion earlier this hour to speak with the brother of a title holder of a property in the Oak Bay area that was, unbeknownst to her, put up for sale recently due to suspected fraudulent activity. I understand that prospect is our first topic. Yes, indeed. Uh, that's right. Uh, you have to now be concerned with the uh, prospect of uh, not somebody simply stealing something from your house, but stealing your entire house. Uh, and to explain what's going on, I think we need to start with how we deal generally with uh, property that might be uh, stolen, how that could occur, and what somebody could do with it. Mm -hmm. So the starting point uh, is this concept in law called NAMO DAT. It's sometimes here referred to as the NAMO DAT rule. And the idea there is that a person can't transfer or sell to somebody else something which they don't own. And so here's how that would play out. Let's say a thief comes onto your property and steals your bicycle uh, and then uh, takes it away, lists it for sale at a reasonable price, and sells it to some innocent uh, person. Yes. Uh, you then see the innocent person riding your nice bicycle down the road. You say, hey, stop. That's my bike. Uh, and indeed, it is still your bike. And the concept there is that the thief who stole your bike doesn't have any authority to transfer ownership to some innocent third party. It's still your bike. Yes. Uh, and so if you were to call the police uh, and say, look, that's my bike, here's my you know, driver's license numbers emblazoned uh, underneath the seat or whatever, indeed, you'll get the bike back. Hmm. And the remedy for the innocent person who bought that bike online or at a store or whatever it might be, would be track down the thief and sue them, <laughs> right? Hmm. Often kind of cold comfort, but that's how that would play out. Now, that's not how it works in British Columbia with respect to real property. Uh, and there's good reason why it doesn't work that way. Um, if that's how it worked with respect to real property, every time you went to try to buy a, a house or other piece of property, you'd have to be very concerned with, does this person actually own this property, right? I don't want to give them a pile of money for something that isn't theirs, right? Because yeah. if that principle of name dad applied, well, I, I might be getting nothing. And moreover, you'd have to be concerned not simply with, does this person own the property? You'd have to be concerned with, does the person who they bought it from, did they own the property? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, how far down the line do you want to go? Uh, because just like in the with the bicycle example, if that bike changed hands five times, it's still your bike, yeah. right? And so you wouldn't want to buy a house and then have somebody knock on your door three years later and say, hey, by the way, I was in South Africa. That's my house. Uh, you know, that person you bought it from bought it from some other person who bought it from a fraud or a sorry, it's still mine. Yeah. And so to avoid that problem and all of the complexities that that would entail, um, trying to deal with a big asset like a, a real property or a home, our system in British Columbia is referred to as the Torrin system. Mm -hmm. And the concept there. Um, is that we have a land title office, and when somebody is listed as being the owner of property in the land title office, it's referred to as indefeasible title. It's theirs. Mm. They absolutely own the thing, and they can deal with it, and you can rely upon that. Um, and so the concern, of course, uh, is where fraud is introduced to the equation. Yeah. And here's how that could be a problem. 
Um, now, in the couple of cases that prompted a uh, alert that went out to the legal profession and an alert by BC uh, Land Title and Survey, uh, the scenario appeared to be somebody using forged South African passports uh, in order to, as the uh, uh, brother who was on uh, commented, yeah. um, they were using these to persuade uh, a property manager and ultimately a real estate agent, and in one case it was a lawyer or a notary, to believe that they were the owner of the home. Uh, and in one case, the property was actually transferred, and the fraud artist was listed uh, you know, got the property transferred to somebody else. Wow. Now, that particular degree of transfer can be fixed because that fraudulent transfer can be set aside. Mm -hmm. But if it was sold on to some innocent third party and they get registered on title, it's their home. Hmm. That's it. The original person who uh, was uh, defrauded is out of luck. Um, and we have a compensation fund which could compensate them, and that's been used apparently twice in the past 10 years. Um, but their property is gone. Um, and uh, you can imagine just exactly how upsetting it would be for that to happen. Yeah. And so the reminder from the uh, Law Society that went out to lawyers is to remind lawyers who do that work to ensure that they are taking steps to verify the identity uh, of their client, the person who's selling uh, the property. And that's become more challenging in the age of COVID uh, because you have more transactions that are occurring online mm -hmm. and you have people that are out of the province and can't come back here, right? Yeah. Um, right. If you're not a citizen, you can't just say, I'm going to fly here from South Africa and deal with my property. Mm -hmm. Terribly sorry. You're staying in South Africa if you're not a Canadian citizen. No, I don't know that person's status, but there are all kinds of reasons why somebody would have to deal with something remotely. And so the Law Society has put in place a requirement that when a lawyer is uh, dealing uh, with a client, they need to verify their identity. And here, of course, the fraud artist produced these fraud, these forged South African passports. So that's a problem. Yeah. Um, what lawyers are supposed to be doing uh, is to have somebody independently, an agent in the jurisdiction where the person resides, go and verify their identity. And even that can be a challenge. One of the alerts of the Law Society pointed out um, is that fraud artists have, uh, in some cases, tried to persuade lawyers to use a particular person as the agent. Hey, why don't you uh, call this lawyer? Oh, and that uh, person's and so in on it? Oh, wow. They're in on it. Oh. And so the lawyer here says, oh, great. Well, I, I've now got a letter from the lawyer in South Africa that says they verified the passport and this person is who they say they are. Okay, very good. File the documentation, transfer the property, um, which, of course, um, is a problem. And so the Law Society has pointed out that uh, lawyers should not use anyone suggested by the purported client, that they should be trying to independently uh, verify the identity of the agent who's verifying the ID by doing things like looking at government uh, databases. Is this person a lawyer in that city? You select them without any regard to the client um, or the you know, person who says that they're uh, your client. Uh, and so this is a real problem, right? And yeah. there are all kinds of professionals involved in these transactions, real estate agents and lawyers and property managers and so on. Um, uh, and uh, all of them just need to use uh, extra care uh, to avoid um, this kind of fraud. 
Um, there are other versions of this fraud that have gone on for some time. Uh, and, you know, we've now talked about that concept of indivisible title. It's like, look, I'm on title in the land title office. You can absolutely rely on that. I am the owner. Yeah. But how far does that go? Um, and one of the issues a few years ago that the BC Court of Appeal had to deal with was, well, look, uh, does that protect somebody who is a mortgage lender? Because that's the other way in which land title records are used. If a bank or a private individual is going to lend money secured by a mortgage, they need to be satisfied, are you the actual owner of this property? And so the bank or uh, person who might be lending money would ordinarily look at, well, show me the title in the land title office. Oh, yes, John Doe, you're the owner. Very good. And then there could be money lent on the strength of you being the owner and granting a mortgage against that property. But what if the person doing that is a fraud artist and they're not the owner? Um, and so that was the fact pattern the Court of Appeal had to deal with um, a few years ago, where the fraud artist uh, managed to uh, get a property transferred to a, a third party they were working with. Uh, and then that third party went and got a mortgage against the property. In this case was $40,000. Mm-hmm. And then the fraud was discovered. Okay, well, now what? Um, because that transfer to the person working with the fraud artist was a fraud, we, they were able to set aside that transaction. The title can be put back. But does it go back with the mortgage on title? Oh, yeah. Who loses? Uh, somebody's got to lose in this circumstance, right? We're, we're probably not finding the fraud artist. Mm-hmm. And so who's out the $40,000? The homeowner who got defrauded or the mortgage lender? And the Court of Appeal uh, determined, and it was an interpretation of what does the language mean in our land title legislation, they concluded that that concept of the title being indefeasible once it's registered does not go so far as to protect the prospective mortgage lender. It does serve to uh, ensure that you are the owner. So if you happen to buy a property and it turns out that Two transactions ago, this was a property transferred by a fraud artist. You actually absolutely own the property. The original person who uh, the fraud, fraud artist defrauded out of their property is out of luck and has to go to that compensation fund. But that doesn't go so far as to protect mortgage lenders. Hmm. Uh, and in some cases, you might say, well, that's a sophisticated, often they're sophisticated banks or other institutions. You know, maybe we're not. Uh, crying too many uh, tears uh, over that, Hmm. but that's not always so. Um, And uh, you can have circumstances where private individuals or smaller organizations are lending money on the strength of, well, this person, look, they're on title. Um, You know, what more can I do to verify uh, that they own the property? And so while we're protecting the owner by our title system, it doesn't protect the mortgage lender. Um, And so this is just an ongoing problem. Uh, and uh, what's occurred recently uh, is a reminder to everyone involved with uh, these kind of very large transactions uh, is that we just need to be taking these additional steps to try to ensure that uh, people are who they say they are. Um, and there are other tips that they send out, including things like uh, real estate agents and uh, lawyers and others should be looking for signs of things that can indicate odd transactions, including things like somebody who says, well, I'm a very private person. I don't really want to put it on MLS. 
or, mm-hmm. you know, I don't really want a for sale sign up. I don't want to, uh, you know, cause issues with the neighbors. Uh, you know, just uh, it's a hot market. Uh, so you can do to sell this thing, right? Yeah. Uh, or somebody saying, well, you know, I'm not too concerned with the price. I want this done quickly. Should be a red flag. Um, uh, the other thing that uh, professionals have been cautioned about are things like um, a client changing how they want to be communicated with. Uh-huh. Like in the case the the caller, somebody said, oh, I'm the uh, Mrs. So-and-so, the owner of this property. I live in South Africa. By the way, I've got a new cell phone. Here's my new number. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, also, uh, here's my new email address, <laughs> right? So that might be a, a cause for concern as well. So there are various things that we might all uh, look for, people that are involved in that work. Uh, but uh, it's a worry. Uh, you don't want to uh, come along and find out that you no longer own your home uh, when you get back from your uh, time overseas, thinking that you had just uh, rented it out. Yeah. And depending how exactly that plays out, you may, in fact, no longer own your home, uh, and you may simply be left with the compensation and need to find somewhere else to live. Let's take our first break. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally Speaking will continue in just a moment on CFAX 1070. And this is Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 as we continue our conversation with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, I've been asked during the break by a texter, is there insurance that one can purchase against the prospect of the type of fraud that you've described? Uh, Indeed there is. Uh, There's a type of insurance called title insurance uh, that uh, somebody would be able to buy. That would be uh, private, private insurance that would... Uh, insure you against uh, problems with the title to your property. Uh, and in fact, uh, that would be the mainstay of how uh, property transactions would occur in jurisdictions uh, that don't have the Torrens system, right? Like if you're in some jurisdictions in the United States, for example, uh, Washington State, for example, they don't have a Torrens system. Uh, and so you would have private companies that would be involved in land uh, transfer transactions, and they would be selling you potentially quite expensive private title insurance um, in order to guard against the prospect that that uh, you know condo or house you bought turned out not to belong to the person who sold it to you, or somewhere down the chain of elephants, each standing on one other's back. Yes, um, somebody in that chain turned out not to be. Uh, an illegitimate owner or something was fraudulent somewhere along the way. So indeed there is, but that process uh, means that you're going to pay and everyone along the chain is going to be paying for private title insurance that in some cases can be quite expensive. And so the land title system we have in British Columbia is a a very good one, right? It's sort of, it's world renowned. It's an excellent model. Uh Um, And, you know, ordinarily you'd say, look, we want to have an ease of transaction, certainty as to who owns something, right? All of those are positive uh, attributes. So uh, there are other models, and you can even also buy title insurance here uh, for less than what you'd pay in other places, because we do have that concept that once you're registered, that's yours come hell or high water. Yeah, it's interesting, the concept of verification. Notaries, of course, uh, pre-COVID, serving the role of making sure that a signature on a document, when that document is executed, is indeed uh, signed by the person uh, to whom it says uh, signed it. How does that work during COVID? Is that done over Zoom, or is it still done in person? I don't even know. Uh, Well, there are now provisions to do some of these transactions online, so you can have transactions occurring where the person is being witnessed by a lawyer or notary 
signing things over a Zoom connection. Interesting. Uh, for example, but you're supposed to, in, in those cases, uh, confirm the identity of the individual uh, using an agent uh, who you've selected independently to try to be sure that this is indeed Mrs. Smith or whoever it might be um, signing and conveying the document. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure how far we can go relying on, you know, untrained people to figure out, does that look like the signature of Mrs. Smith? Yeah. Um, we, you know, we need to do more than that, and indeed we do. All right. Uh, recent award I'm reading here, $30,000 after text messages and Facebook postings making allegations with respect to sexual assault. Yes, I think this is a really timely one, given some of what's been uh, going on in Victoria. Um, this was a, a case, a decision that just came out uh, last month. It involved uh, two women in their mid-40s, uh, one of whom was uh, sending text messages and putting things on Facebook, uh, alleging, amongst other things, that uh, the plaintiff, that woman, uh, had engaged in sexual misconduct. Um, and she had posted uh, things claiming that, for example, the uh, plaintiff had sexually abused a, quote, younger peer at some point in the past. Uh, apparently, that was some reference to something when the woman was a child involving some other child who was a year younger than her. But she's sort of giving the impression that this person was uh, involved in child sexual abuse when simply no such thing had occurred. Hmm. Uh, and so the, the woman who was the recipient of these messages online sued. Um, and the, the judge agreed. There, there's a concept, the concept of uh, defamation. You have to look at, you know, would the words tend to lower the reputation of the uh, person in the eyes of a reasonable person? Indeed, yeah. that kind of thing certainly would. Yeah. Do they refer to the plaintiff? Yes, they do. Were they published? And that's important. Publication doesn't mean in the newspaper. It means communicated to at least one person other than the plaintiff. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. All those are met. Uh, and so the judge awarded... Uh, in this case, uh, $20,000 for, uh, by way of general damages. And then because the woman who is the defendant, despite a letter from the lawyer of the plaintiff telling her to stop doing this, continued to post derogatory things online, mm. uh, she got hit with an additional $10,000 in aggravated damages. And I should say all of this could have been vastly more uh, in terms of the uh, award, although the judge found in this case that the uh, failure of the plaintiff's business wasn't proven to be the result of uh, the comments by the defendant. If it was, there would have been vastly more money involved. So don't think things you're doing online are going to be in any way actually anonymous uh, or that there's some impunity uh, to uh, make remarks uh, in that kind of a forum. Yeah, Because if you say something that damages a person's reputation, you may be on the hook for a very large uh, sum of money. Those cases are real, uh, and uh, you have to be just so careful uh, that you not be uh, posting or repeating false statements that are going to damage somebody's reputation, or you're going to find yourself in court. Yeah, indeed. Um, interesting, because defamation, of course, is strict liability. Tort damages are, are presumed, but they're not presumed to be substantial. So the minimum quantum could be like a dollar. But in this case, as you mentioned, it could have been a lot higher than just 30000 Yes, indeed, right? You're posting messages saying somebody's engaged in the sexual abuse yeah. of children. What could be more damaging to somebody's reputation? Uh, if you're wrong, you're going to be on the hook for it. Absolutely. Um, we have, let's see, two and a half minutes left. How shall we spend them? Sure. I think we can uh, describe the last case in about that time. Uh, so the last case to talk about is a uh, high-conflict family dispute 
which of course are the kind of disputes that eat up all kinds of court time. This one involved a 12-day trial for things involving parenting time, decision-making, retroactive child support, undue hardship, income distribution, division of property, frankly, everything one can imagine. Mm. Uh, And the person who lost at trial was the mother in this case. She was trying to resist, amongst other things, uh, sharing parenting responsibility. Uh, And she wound up with a costs award of $34,481 against her. The ex-husband was in turn ordered to pay $19,475 in back child support. Hmm. But things got even more contentious uh, because shortly after that, the mother who had the costs award against her, uh, because parenting time was awarded equally, no surprise, um, went bankrupt. (laughs) And so they said, well, I don't have to pay the $34,000. The husband then uh, came and said, look, you should court attribute all of that uh, money costs award to being with respect to child support because child support obligations are exempt from bankruptcy. You can't get out of child support by declaring bankruptcy. Uh, So that's what he was trying to do saying, Hey, this isn't fair. I had to pay. She's supposed to pay me 34,000. I'm supposed to pay her 19,000. This isn't fair, but he was unsuccessful. Uh, the uh, court found that much of the trial was not to do with child support. It had to do with all these other things these people were fighting about. Yeah. Uh, and the judge found that the bankruptcy was as a result of the uh, uh, ex-wife's hair salon closing due to COVID. And so uh, the high conflict goes on. Uh, and in this case, the uh, uh, mother has avoided the $34,000 cost bill despite the 12-day unsuccessful trial trying to avoid uh, her ex-husband uh, having time with the children, uh, but uh, he nonetheless is on the hook for the child support of 19000 And And I guess some insult to that injury, he's also having to pay costs for the application, trying to get the ex-wife to have to continue to pay the costs from the last application. Oof. So I guess the takeaway for people is try to get along, folks. <laughs> if you spend all of your time and money in court fighting over these things, you're going to rack up large bills. And at the end of the day, you know, the likely outcome in most cases is going to be like in this case, you get equal time with the children and pay your child support. So try to work it out. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking, in the second half of our second hour every Thursday on CFAX 1070. Thanks so much, Michael. Until next week. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. All right. Bye now.